see you all. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have Bibles, if you could turn to that passage and we'll read it together in a moment. Um, it's good to see the bright colours on this side and smiling faces to match them. And then we have this side. <laughs> anyway, we're coming to the end of this letter and Paul is about to wrap up what he's been saying. It's been a difficult letter to write. Um, he's dealing with a church which has got a lot of sin involved in it. There's division, there's false teaching, and they're accusing Paul himself in a personal way. So he's had to deal with a lot. And we're coming to the end of it now. He's wrapping up this letter, and he deals with it in three sections I want to look at. One is he asked them to prepare themselves in verses 1 to 4. Then he asked them to examine themselves in verses 5 to 10. And then there are final encouragements and challenges. One of the greatest sadnesses I've seen over my life is Christians falling out with each other. Groups of Christians disagreeing to the point where they divide. So when we're thinking of this letter and thinking, well, this is a letter that, to a church which is very different. Let's remember that these things still happen. These things are still going on in churches today. And we're all a part of that. We all have a part to play. Go read the chapter now. It's chapter 13. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent on my return. I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in, your, in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come I may, have to be, may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of peace and love will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's a different... Even in this last chapter, the final part of the letter, he's still having to deal with difficult issues. And he mentions at the beginning about this thing about two or three witnesses. 
And that's a good policy to put into practice. Prevention is better than cure. And how many of our difficulties over the years might have been resolved by adopting that principle? It's referred to, it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter, um, Deuteronomy chapter something. Abigail, you wanted quotations for everything. And it's 19 verse 15, right? So please write, if I don't see you write it down, I'll be a bit concerned. Because it's taken me a lot of trouble to look these references up. And then we have 1 Timothy 5, 19 and Matthew 18, verse 15. I know I'm too quick. Right? But in several places, we find that this principle of two or three witnesses, of when something happens, that it's not left to one person to start a rumor. It's not left to one person to try and resolve that issue. But it should be two or three people. And that could often solve many of the problems that we have. And we should be adopting that principle ourselves when situations arise. We have a, we have a loving fellowship here. We have a, a united fellowship, I believe, here. But can I also say, where God is working, Satan will also work. And attacks will come in. So let's not be complacent. Let's remember that these things will happen. And we need to know how to handle them when they do happen. So warnings need to be given to people at times. And Paul is quite clear on that. He's warning them. Get your act together. Stop behaving as you're behaving. Stop sinning. I've given you time to repent. I hope by the time I come to see you, you will have repented of your sin and not just carried on as you are. And I'm pointing you to the truth, and I want that truth to be seen in you. These issues must be dealt with. He also deals with the question of authority because they are questioning his authority. Who are you to tell us what we should do. We've got other teachers here who seem to be far more um, confident than you. They speak with a, a more confident voice. They seem better than you. So why should we listen to you who is rather weak and meek? And he uses the example of Jesus. And we thought a little bit of that this morning as we were breaking the bread about the, the Lord Jesus. How he was when he was here. How he spoke to people with love and compassion. How he was quietly spoken. There's that incident when he met the rich young man and this rich young man who had all sorts of issues in his life he wanted to know how do I get eternal life what do I do and it says that Jesus looked at the man and loved him and that happens time and time again that Jesus had a love for individuals no matter what the situation was and then when he came to the cross and the way he suffered on the cross and he opened not his mouth he didn't respond to the the jibes that were coming his way and that is often seen as weakness. But then we see in the Lord Jesus that he was raised from the dead. The power of God raised him from the dead. And all authority is in Jesus. He had the authority to defeat sin, to defeat death, to satisfy a holy God. And that authority is placed in him. And it still is placed in him. And Paul is saying that Jesus has the authority. He may have come across as being meek, but in fact, he is strong and powerful. And Paul says that he has tried to imitate that in his own way. I've tried to be meek towards you as well. I've tried to be understanding and caring and loving towards you. But if you want me to show my authority, I will do. Because I've got that authority given to me um, from the Lord himself. So... Meekness and weakness 
in individuals doesn't mean to say lack of authority. Sometimes you know, the, the loudest voice isn't necessarily the correct voice. We've got to test it, haven't we, against scripture. Issues must be dealt with, with witnesses, in love, and by God's power and authority. That's how we need to deal with things as they come along. And the sadness we see in people dividing, we would just pray that those people might be reconciled, that those situations could be dealt with in a different way. It's so sad, isn't it, to see that. Then Paul goes on to ask a very challenging question. He says in verse 5, examine yourself. Now, I think this is quite a strange one. He's writing to what we think of as a group of Christians living in Corinth. And the way he's phrasing this question, he's saying, almost test whether you are in the faith or not. He's saying, are you a Christian? Now, we might find that quite strange to have that um, question being put to what we see as a, a group of Christians. But, you know, it, it's possible for people to come along to church, even this morning, and not know the Lord Jesus. We can come for all sorts of reasons. We can come because we're invited. We can come because it's a nice place to be. We come because our family came. All sorts of reasons why we might come. But, Jesus, but Paul is saying here, Examine yourselves and test why you're here. They are strong words. But he says, well, in the letters so far, I've actually spelt out to you what it means to be a Christian. And that's what I want you to examine yourself against. On Thursday night, Jim talked about uh, soldiers and the Christians being soldiers and being a serious Christian. And know what it means to be a serious Christian, really believing in what we read and understand. Not just going through the motions. Let's look at what Paul says in this letter to explain what a Christian is. In chapter 1, verse 20, Abigail, he says, it finds fulfillment in Christ. A Christian finds fulfillment in Christ. Everything that we need is found in Christ. That's a challenging phrase. Because so often we actually find other things to satisfy us, other things to fulfill us. But it's saying here that a, a serious Christian is one who finds fulfillment in Christ alone. Verse one, verse uh, verse, sorry, chapter 1, verse 22. A Christian has the Holy Spirit. So important for us to grasp that, that we're not striving to receive the Holy Spirit but we have, once we become a Christian, received the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And he tells us that in chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 18, he talks about a Christian, a serious Christian, being transformed into his image. That we're seeing a change in our lives as we go through life. We're not staying the same. We don't become a Christian and everything's become static and nothing changes. We carry on with the same way of, of doing things. But we are being transformed by the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Our minds are being renewed. We're thinking differently now. And we're becoming more like Christ. We'll never be perfect. We know that in this world. But we know that by his power he can transform our thinking. And a test, a measure of a true Christian, a, a serious Christian, is one who we can see that transformation taking place. 
In chapter 4, verse 7, he talks about a real, a serious Christian knowing that he can only do things by the power of God. Right? We cannot do anything in our own strength. We can try, but often it fails, doesn't it? Or sometimes we can try and it seems to be successful. In a worldly sense, a human sense, it can appear to be quite successful. But really for anything to have any lasting benefit and for the glory of God, it has to come from God. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, a serious Christian is an ambassador for Christ. That's what they are. Ambassadors are people who represent their nation when they're abroad. We're representing Christ here while we're living here. Not just now in this hall, but wherever we are, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever situation we find ourselves, we're having something to eat, we're meeting with friends, wherever we go, we are Christ's ambassador. And you know the important thing about that is they might know you're a Christian, but how do you behave in their presence? And the way you behave, does it say to them, yes, this is something I want to know more about? Or are we ambassadors who let Christ down? So serious Christians recognize that we are ambassadors for Christ in the way that we live. And in chapters 8 and 9, he talks about the willingness for them to give what they have because Christ has given so much for them. And then in chapters 10 to 12, we, he covers the fact that as Christians, we will suffer. We will suffer persecution. Life will not be easy, but we do it because we know what Christ has done for us. And these are some of the features that he outlined in the letter. He's explained that to them. He's now saying, test yourself against that. Is that really what you believe? And I, I ask, I'm going to ask the question this morning. Is that what you believe? Are you a Christian who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has accepted that he died for your sins, and that you're now prepared to follow him and give you all for him, and everything that you have is fulfilled in Christ. He talks about if Christ is in you, Paul refers to that, if Christ is in you, then we will show meekness and gentleness with others. We'll be seen as a servant. We'll have that servant attitude to the same way the Lord Jesus did. We'll not boast about our own achievements. We'll not stay in sin. We'll not remain in that sin that captivated us. But we'll be free from that sin and we'll want to get away from it. And I ask that question, is there something in our life which is holding us back, that's dragging us down? We're still holding on to something which we know is wrong. No one else knows about it, so actually I think I'm okay. But God knows about it. And God wants us to get away from that, to put it to one side. We will want to be obedient to God's word. And when we're obedient to God's word, there will be fruit seen in our lives. You don't have to boast about it because people will see in you the love, the kindness, generosity. That's in our lives. There's something you could put away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's okay, I wasn't joking. 
a serious Christian then, test ourselves, examine ourselves against what Paul has been teaching these Christians. We know it. The vast majority here know it. We've heard it. But test yourself against it. Examine yourself. And Paul's not doing this to put them down. He's doing it. His heart's desire is that they will turn things around, that they will get it right instead of doing wrong, that they will be restored to Christ because some of them have drifted away. They will be complete. They will become mature. That's what his desire is. He's longing for that to happen in them. He's basically saying, grow up. You're behaving as children. You've got to start growing up. He says at verse 10, I want to build you up rather than tear you down. We can be devoted to church, we can be devoted to family and people and a good life, but not devoted to Christ. That's possible. And that's the question we're asking ourselves this morning, and Paul was asking them. Then the final section, from verses 11 to 14, he just finishes with some encouragements and challenges for us to take away at the end of this letter. He starts by saying, be joyful or rejoice. I appreciate we're perhaps looking at different translations, so the words might be slightly different. Mine says, rejoice. And that's not a superficial joy. It's not something based on if I get a new car, if I go on a holiday, that will make me happy. It probably will, right? These things will make us happy. But that's not the joy he's talking about. He's talking about the joy that is a choice that we make. When difficulties come along, do we recognize that God is in them and God is with us in them? And therefore we can rejoice because of what God is doing in our lives to help us to mature and to grow. We can choose to focus on what we have through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ rather than what we would like to have. We can choose these things. We can choose how we respond to circumstances that come along. Are we able to rejoice or do we moan about everything that comes along? So the first encouragement is rejoice. Be joyful as Christians. Then he says, be restored. He wants full restoration. Now, that could be being restored to God, but also being restored to one another. If we've fallen out with a brother or sister, be restored. Go to them. Ask for their forgiveness. And just ask that you might have that unity with them. It might be dealing with sin, as I've mentioned, that will help us to be restored to God. It's to grow and mature. It's to act on what we believe in. Believing in itself, you know, the devils believe in God. But we've got to act on it. So when, you, when we read things in the Bible, or things that he wants us to do, our natural reaction should be, I want to do that. Then he talks about encouraging one another. Stop squabbling with each other, but actually be a cheerleader. One of our granddaughters goes to these cheerleading classes where they dance around with pom-poms and whatever. And if you know if you've ever been to maybe a football match or a rugby match, so occasionally you'll get a group of um, children acting as cheerleaders, supporting their team 
and dancing around. And they're not interested in themselves. They're looking at the team and they're cheerleading that team. And that's what we want, isn't it? Whenever we hear of our brother or sister getting involved in something, our natural reaction should be to encourage them, to cheer them on. Even if we're not involved in it ourselves, it's recognizing that they are and to encourage them in that work. So encourage one another. I think one of the greatest things in life is to be encouraged. We all like someone to come alongside us and say, you're doing a good job. Right? Then he says, be of one mind. Look for common ground amongst ourselves. Don't look for the things that divide us. And act as if we are the body of Christ, because we are the body of Christ. Act in that way. We're all in this together. Christ is our head. And he is directing us. Now, he might direct one of you to do one thing and another one to do something totally different. But it's all in the will of God. And we should be of one mind in the work that we're doing. It doesn't mean that we will agree on everything. But we agree on the important things. I go back to the sadness of divisions. Very often it's the, it's the trivial things that cause that division. We believe the same things, but we get caught up with trivia. And he says, live in peace. Find solutions, not problems. Sometimes it's easier, isn't it, to find problems. You know, I was in business. You get people who say, well, you know, they see all the, the problems that you're doing. And I can't say, well, have you got any ideas? No, but there's more problems I've thought of. And we do get that. We get problems, but no solutions. And we should be coming up with solutions to help each other live in peace. To know the peace of God, we need to pursue peace with each other. How can we expect God's peace to be seen in our lives if we cannot have peace with one another? And we're living together in the same place. Forgive one another. Recognize that we're all in the same situation. We all have temptations. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with all sorts of things in life. Recognize that we are all the same. And then, finally it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I was brought up in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh people have a reputation for being rather cool. Rather cool in, in sense, not cool as in trendy. Cool as in a bit cold, right? Uh, for example, if you go to someone's house, they'll say, you'll have had your tea. Yeah. There's no warmth involved. And that was an Edinburgh tradition. So having a handshake was quite an achievement, right? So when I moved out of Edinburgh and people started hugging each other, that was scary, right? <laughs> I had to, it took me probably 10 years to get a hang of this hugging people. But what he's talking here about, he's saying a holy kiss. It does differ from different parts of the world. Some parts of the world, it is a kiss on each cheek, so it's a normal way of greeting. I would say for us, it's a handshake, it's a hug, it's an arm around the shoulder. It's showing some form of recognition and fellowship that we are all part of the same family. And we are. When you meet a member of your family, the chances are you hug them. You greet them warmly. Then he wants us to greet each other in that same warm way. Because we're part of God's family. 
is a saint of fellowship. He talks about greetings. I greet, greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. And I just want to remind ourselves that we're a small group here, but there are many believers around this city, around this country, around this world. And we're all part of that same family. We're all part of that same body of Christ. We might differ in, differ in one or two minor things, but in the main things of salvation, we are the same. And we need to greet one another as brothers and sisters and not cut ourselves off from them. And then we come to the, the benediction that you might refer to as at the end, verse 14. When he says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of God reminds us that each one of us is a sinner that's been saved by grace. And that salvation is a gift from God. Sometimes as we grow older, we can actually start to think we've had a part to play in the salvation. Actually, you know, I'm such a good guy now that maybe it's because of that I'm saved. And we have to constantly remind ourselves we are only saved by grace. We're only saved because it's a gift from God. And when we keep doing that, it helps us to stop thinking that we might be better than someone else. We're all the same. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is a gift that we've received. And we need grace to live each day. We have grace when we are saved, but God continues to give things which we don't deserve every day. And it tells us in Hebrews that we should ask for that grace. Ask for that grace each day to help us, just in our daily walk, in the normal things of life. Then he says, the love of God. As we read together, as we pray together, as we worship together, we learn to love God more and more. That should be our experience. But also we learn more about God's love for us. That love for us grows each day. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. When they were building castles, one of the problems they had was the water for the people living in the castle was often outside the castle and they had an aqueduct coming in. And the enemies realized quite quickly that if they actually cut off the water supply, they couldn't get water into the castle and the people eventually would have to give up because they couldn't survive. Then they had a bright idea. I think it was a man. It's a joke. <laughs> if we build this castle on a spring of fresh water, that will come up into the castle and we won't be relying on water from outside and no one can stop it coming in. And that's the lovely pictures of the Holy Spirit springing up inside of us. Everlasting water that will keep us going. He is the one that's going to prompt us and lead us and guide us each day. We've come to the end of this letter. There's a lot of challenges in there. A lot of difficult things to face. But we're left with these wonderful words, aren't we? That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that they might be with us forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you deal with difficult um, issues, um, but we thank you that your word can be relied on. And we just pray that what we've learned over the last few weeks 